You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, we have a preview of the Aurora Sports Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Also on the show, new music from Nix. And we have advice for parents about internet safety from cybertip.ca. But with Halloween just around the corner, the trick-or-treaters want the forecast. Afwaba starts us off with Environment Canada. October 31st is Halloween. If you're an adult and you're planning on heading out to any type of work costume party this weekend, or if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out how to dress your kids on the night of Halloween, I've got you covered with your weather forecast coming up. Joining me to chat today is meteorologist with Environment Canada, Peter Kimball. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Well, let's uh, look ahead to, before we get a look ahead into the day of Halloween, October 31st, let's take a look at this weekend. Um, if anyone is heading out to any sort of Halloween-themed parties, uh, will it be a comfortable weekend in terms of the weather? Well, you know, the normal high this time of year is 11, uh, and normal low is 4. So this weekend we're looking for temperatures not too far from that. So seasonable temperatures, so not, not bad. Uh, possibly significant amounts of rain. Um, I would say probably a pretty good chance of 15 millimeters, maybe even 25. Uh, so it'll be a rainy weekend. Okay, bit of a soaker. So they should uh, definitely keep an umbrella with them if they're heading out this weekend. Looking ahead onto uh, the day of October 31st, how is it looking so far? I mean, for the day, how would it look for those who are heading to school or to work in their costumes? And then, of course, for the nighttime for uh, parents that will be taking their kids out for trick-or-treating. At this point, uh, there are indications of a storm brewing uh, over the Great Lakes area on, uh, on Halloween or actually on the 1st of November. Now, what that doesn't necessarily mean anything really bad for the GTA, but it probably will involve uh, rain, uh, mild temperatures, and possibly windy. Uh, so not not a bad uh, outlook given the fact that we're quite a few days away, but it looks like people may have to prepare for uh, a wet Halloween. I will take a wet Halloween any day in terms of rain as opposed to snow because I did hear the S word being tossed around a little bit a couple days before and I was a bit worried. Yeah, I think that there is going to be some cool, uh, you know, even nice, dare, dare say cold weather for the prairies uh, and uh, dipping down into the Midwestern United States, possibly invading into uh, Michigan, Lake Michigan. On, um, on Halloween, but no, I don't think that will affect Toronto. Toronto, at this point, I think we'll be looking for mild conditions um, and, uh, and, like I said, rain. All right. Thank goodness for that. Okay. And then a, a look ahead. I know we're going to be uh, having a daylight saving time with a time change. We're going to be falling back an hour on November 3rd. Do you have maybe just a couple of tips uh, for residents that are going to be heading out. I know that sometimes they say with the time change, it might take a, a bit of time for residents to adjust. Well, the time change occurs uh, Sunday morning of the November 3rd. Uh, what that means, of course, is an extra hour of sleep in the morning. 
Uh, and uh, so when people go to go to work on Monday, uh, the fourth, there will be it'll be brighter in the morning. You know, one extra hour of sunlight in the morning, which is good news for people heading into work. But the for the flip side, of course, is that on the way home, uh, it's going to be darker earlier uh, as we get into the uh, the winter season. Uh, weather-wise, it's just way too early to be specific about what what to expect for November third. Uh, I think, generally speaking, given the fact that we're looking for probably a a storm in the Great Lakes uh, on Halloween, November 1st. Likely cool weather uh, behind the storm is likely going to be expected the first few days of, of November. All right. I will take that and I will uh, keep that in my back pocket in terms of information to look forward to and look ahead to for the time change. For now, uh, residents, uh, just, of course, keep the umbrella handy. Looks like we could get some uh, spotty showers here and there. Um, definitely this weekend is going to be a bit of a soaker as well leading into Halloween Day. Looks like there might be some showers here and there, too. But uh, we will continue to update you on the, infra- the weather forecast as it continues to uh, roll closer to that date. Peter Kimball, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. On Thursday, those little ghosts and goblins will be out and about. York Regional Police are reminding parents, don't let your kids wear masks. It can obstruct their view and they could hurt themselves. Use reflective items on dark clothing so they can be seen. And although tempting, remind kids not to eat any candy before they get home so you can check it. Halloween safety tips also extend to our pets. Jim Lang explains. Halloween is almost upon us, and uh, it's not just kids we have to worry about with certain treats and candies. It's our pets and our dogs. To talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking to Dr. Caroline Wild. She's a veterinarian at True Pandy and a leader of medical insurance for cats and dogs throughout North America. Doctor, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing today? Well, fine, thank you. I'm a, a longtime dog owner with my wife and kids, and we, uh, I mean, like a lot of dog owners, we spoil our dog rotten, but we try to be good about what they eat. But our dog is a vigil, it's a hound dog, and if things fall on the floor, Hershey will eat it. And how dangerous can that be on Halloween? Uh, it really depends on what's dropped, and it's, it's better to just assume that anything that's dropped could be potentially dangerous to a dog, and if your dog eats something that you're unsure about, then definitely call your veterinarian or poison control to make sure that, that it's safe for your dog. Now, I, you know, I know my wife and I are a little, I guess, cautious about this. We like to spell out all the candies they get when they go trick-or-treating to make sure there's nothing that looks shady, and then they have the rest, but there's such a variety of different chocolates and treats and snacks. Are there certain chocolates that are more dangerous to your dog than others? So... Generally speaking, the darker the chocolate, the more potentially toxic it can be to dogs. Now, when a dog eats chocolate, the level of toxicity depends on the size of the dog. Obviously, a little chihuahua is going to be more potentially hurt by a smaller chocolate than, say, a 60-pound shepherd-type dog. So the size of the dog matters. The amount of the chocolate consumed also will determine how toxic it could be. And then also the most important thing is how dark the chocolate is because the darker the chocolate, the more concentrated that dangerous substance is. White chocolate has very little toxin, whereas um, a square of uh, baker's chocolate could be lethal to a dog. Wow. So, that, And that's what I was going to ask you, doctor, is it, it, Halloween's a busy night, you're doing stuff. 
but then your dog looks not right. What are the warning signs like, hey, something's not right with our dog. Maybe we should take them to a vet. So when we start to see clinical signs, that means that it's already been absorbed. So we want to try to get them before we see clinical signs. But the things that we would see more most commonly um, for chocolate in particular would be vomiting and diarrhea. Um, and at higher doses, they can have tremors seizures, uh, hyperactivity, those are the biggest things that we would see. Is there any, um, uh, is like salted water or anything you can give them right away if you suspect they ate some chocolate before you take them to the vet? So I would actually suggest taking them to the vet right away because chocolate in particular is harder to get out of the stomach because it likes to stick to the stomach walls. So best to let the veterinarian try and induce vomiting and take whatever measures are indicated in that specific case. It also depends on how long it's been because it takes food about two hours to leave the stomach. So once we've passed that two hours, it's harder for vomiting to be effective. Speaking with Dr. Caroline Wild, she's an experienced veterinarian, a true panty, and the leader of medical insurance for cats and dogs throughout North America, cautioning us on the dangers of your dog eating chocolate on Halloween and how dangerous it can be to their health and possibly lethal uh, chocolate's one thing. What about things like grapes and raisins? So grapes and raisins, the thing about those is that we don't know exactly what the toxic component is, and we don't know how much it takes. So one grape can be toxic to a dog, um, or a grape cannot be toxic to a dog. So the, the safest thing is, A, not to feed your dog any grapes or raisins, but B, if they do eat it, just assume that the amount that they ingested is toxic and take them to a veterinarian right away at the end of the day if you just follow your your vet's i guess wishes and a plan of just feeding them nothing but healthy and approved dog food and away from the treats you should be fine in halloween yeah so that's true it's if it's labeled for people then probably don't let your dog anywhere near it um the safest thing to do would be to keep everything safely secured and out of your dog's reach. Remember that dogs can certainly get into things that are wrapped and they can get up on your counter. So just exercise extra caution and be aware of what's in the house. I like the one about the counters. I always see those videos on Facebook of some dog hopping on the counter eating something. You think it's funny at the time until they're eating <laughs> Halloween chocolate, then it could be very dangerous. Yep, it absolutely can. And, and you know, all it takes is leaving... Uh, a trash can unattended for a couple seconds, and a dog can get into that too. So it's just really important to be aware of, of what's around the dogs to try and make it as safe as possible for them. Great advice. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for letting us know about that. Dr. Caroline Wilds, an experienced and knowledgeable veterinarian, a true panty, and a leader of medical insurance for cats and dogs, warning us, keep the chocolate and treats on Halloween away from your dog, and you'll have a good Halloween night. Doctor, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk soon. Thank you. It was great talking to you, too. Have a great day. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for replay. Our next story is a reminder for parents to be involved in their kids' online activity. What we're coming to talk about is a disturbing trend that continues to happen right underneath our noses, but it's something that we need to continue to discuss in order to stop the trend and keep kids safe. 
What we're talking about today is child luring. Joining me to chat today is Catherine Tabak. She is the program manager at cybertip.ca. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Just for uh, the listeners, if they do not know about cybertip.ca, if you could just give us a little bit of background info on uh, what the organization does. Sure. So, um, I mean, we're Canada's tip line for reporting instances of online child sexual exploitation. So we um, take reports from the public related to eight different criminal code offenses, one of them being luring. Um, in terms of statistics, is something someone uh, people are always um, interested in. Right now, our tip line is processing about 10,000 reports per month from the public, um, and about half of those reports are actually being sent back out uh, to policing agencies for possible investigations. Um, And in terms of luring offenses, uh, so far in 2019, we've received about 281 reports related to luring that have been sent back out to police. And the second part of our mandate is also to provide educational information and resources to the public to help keep their families safe online. How necessarily does this child luring happen? I mean, parents are trying to be as vigilant as they can, but of course it's not necessarily the what you see in the movies as uh, with a van sort of lurking outside and then they pick up the child. Um, these are things that are more veiled, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the thing is, is with sort of the public nature of the internet and easy access to it, I mean, uh, teens and, and kids are having access to devices at a very early age. Um, and so those conversations with them are at that early age are very important. Um, and in terms of, you know, those online communication with adults and, and offenders, really when we see these instances reported to the tip line, we're seeing them in um, relation to grooming behavior. Um, and the key in sort of identifying that is really trying to cut off those communications between a teen or a child and an adult at the early stages. So involvement of parents is very crucial. Um, And also having those ongoing conversations with teens about, um, you know, the concerns and and the risks and consequences to those online communications, especially with people that they don't know offline. And so then what age group is most susceptible to child luring? I know it, the title is child luring, but is there a certain age category that um, you see more uh, common cases happening? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the tip line, when we look back at sort of what's been reported to us so far, um, when we looked at a, a two-year period, I mean, about 50%, um, you know, just over 45% involved victims um, from age 14 to 17, but we have seen certain cases involving children as young as eight. Okay, and um, let me just backtrack a little bit, um, just so that maybe we can help residents better understand what happens with child luring. You mentioned grooming. What are some of the things that parents should be looking out for? I know maybe children and um, adolescents, they might get to that age where they're going and they want to have a little bit more alone time, but how do they differentiate between something that might be just... uh, Uh, a normal phase that adolescents might be going through as opposed to maybe something that parents should be taking a little bit more or looking into a bit more? Yeah, you know, I mean, at any point, um, we would never, you know, indicate that a conversation between an adult and a child online is okay. An adult should never be seeking to communicate with a child 
um, online at any point. Um, but really even paying attention to different cues that your child might be giving, like spending more time in either the bathroom or bedroom um, or isolating themselves from friends um, or, you know, even reaching out to other adults with concerns that they might have um, or asking questions about, you know, um, hypothetically, would you think that this could happen or would this be okay? Um, but we ha- we do see sort of a wide range in terms of grooming tactics that are used by offenders online. Um, and it's interesting to see in terms of what's being reported to the tip line, often we see when um, it involves male victims, we're seeing them engage more in risky behavior, you know, without considering really the outcomes um, or risks and consequences. Whereas with females, we see less compliance until, um, unless there are threats or sort of an, an emotional connection or trust has been established with the person that they're communicating with. Um, so when you look at, you know, sharing of sexual pictures um, and, and actually when communicating with an adult, um, that's the adult offending against the child. So it's important for the child to know that it's never okay for an adult to ask them for pictures. The adult is always in the wrong. And so any, you know, shame or embarrassment that they might feel really needs to go out the window. Um, but we do see a different, you know, different types of tactics used by offenders. So the offer of gifts, money, cell phones, um, other devices or drugs and alcohol, um, and in the female group, we often see, you know, promise of loving relationship. Um, offenders are actually more forthcoming about who they are and, and their age. Um, and so children will often find themselves in these situations thinking that, you know, they're in a relationship with this person or have a really special connection. Okay, and I'm glad that you mentioned that there. That was the, the question that popped up. Why do you think then that children are more... Um, readily accepting um, those who are actually forthcoming about their age. I mean, um, as you mentioned earlier, um, it used to be some of those veiled incidents where they would portray themselves to be children, but now they're just saying straight up, this is who I am, this is how old I am. Well, a lot of teens' connections, even with their own friends who are similar of age, happens online. So in terms of them building trust and um, people being honest, that's where they learn um, you know, all of that is, is really in their online communications. They're exploring online, connecting with people that they don't really know in person. Um, and so I think in terms of when you look at the grooming behavior, sometimes an offender might come in and, and lie about their age, but it sort of progresses as they build that rapport with the child, then they'll unveil who they really are. And at that point, they've already built that trust and that connection with the child. So the child might be more open to be accepting of that. But really, I think it's, it's crucial that parents get involved in these ongoing conversations. So essentially, once a child has, you know, gotten access to a device, of course, you're going to keep your, your teaching or your information age appropriate. Um, but it really needs to start and needs to be consistent. So having one conversation about internet safety really is not going to do the trick. Um, there needs to, the, the parent really needs to build that rapport with the child too so that they feel comfortable going to them when um, they find themselves in an uncomfortable situation. Does the organization provide tips or once a child is affected, 
um, or as a victim of child luring, what happens next? Uh, is there a way that you step in or is there are there resources that you direct them to? Mm-hmm. So when we have parents or even teens calling in, um, I mean, as the, the reporting entity for reporting these crimes, uh, part of our role is essentially to take information. And if it sort of met that threshold where police need to be involved, we will send that information off to police. Um, and so when we have people calling in, sometimes certain situations maybe haven't met that threshold. So a parent might have intervened fairly early in the communication between the teen and this other person. And so uh, we're able to provide the parent with some tips on, you know, how to have that conversation with their teen, how to cut off the com- communication. Um, so ceasing commu- communication with that other person is, is very, very important before it sort of goes to the next level. But also there's, there's never any harm in reporting information about an individual who you might have concerns about. So even if it hasn't met that threshold, having that information, um, you know, even as intelligence is very important. But our site um, at cybertip.ca, we have an internet safety tab, and that's where parents can go to get some more information related to that. Um, and we also have a site called protectkidsonline.ca, which has a wealth of information about internet safety based on age group. So even if you a parent doesn't know how to start that conversation with their child, they can visit the site and, and get some examples of how to keep that communication ongoing, um, but also building that trust with their child to make sure that they know that they can go to them um, no matter what. And the other important piece, too, is going into these conversations without judgment. So um, one thing that you'll anyone would see sort of in the in the teen space is that they get defensive really easily. And so it's important for parents to go into the conversation, um, trying to disconnect it from maybe a situation that the child is involved in. So using, you know, local media articles and just opening up that conversation so that it'll make the child feel more comfortable um, disclosing anything to them. Um, but also the consistency is important because, uh, like you said, having a one, you know, one-off conversation about internet safety doesn't help build good, um, good tools in their toolbox for addressing this, these situations that they'll most likely come across online at some point in their lives. Um, so those two sites definitely have a lot of information, but even calling into our tip line where we have analysts available to walk them through, um, any particular situation, but then also providing them with tips on how to have that conversation with their kids. If you could just one more time uh, plug the information, contact info and socials, um, if anyone needs any more information, um, needs tips, or maybe is suspecting that someone they know might be a victim of child luring and they want to call in, um, where do they contact? Uh, They can contact our tip line. So we have a toll-free number, which is one 658 um, we also have a contact us form on that site as well. If, if you know, uh, we know anonymity is, is really huge sometimes for teens and they just want to come in and ask questions, um, they can do so through our contact us form. Um, and then the site itself has that internet safety section, um, which has information for parents on how to help keep their teens safe online. And then um, our center also has protectkidsonline.ca, which is essentially an internet safety resource site, um, which has very similar information to what's on the cyber tip site as well. 
Perfect. Catherine, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to educate me, educate residents in the region about uh, child luring and uh, what we can do to prevent uh, these crimes from happening in the country. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including a preview of the Aurora Sports Hall of Fame induction ceremony. The Aurora Sports Hall of Fame has emerged as a real interesting snapshot and celebration of sports in the region in Aurora, and now it's building to something even bigger than better than ever. And coming up... November the 7th, a Thursday evening at Historic St. Andrews College is another edition of the Aura Sports Hall of Fame induction celebration. Always an amazing night for people in the region to celebrate sports in our community. Thrilled to be speaking to David Tom, the president of Tom Partners in Sports Marketing. David, how are you? Fantastic, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm, I've been there a few times, and it really is an impressive celebration. It, and sometimes I think in our own community, we don't celebrate our own enough. And it's great to see some of the wide variety of athletes and builders being celebrated. And now I have a little bias because my daughter was a swimmer under the Aurora Ducks program, but great to see Red Chappelle and everything he's done for swimming in the region and then how he's produced athletes perform nationally, internationally, get the recognition he so richly deserves. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Reg is a uh, terrific addition to the Hall of Fame. Uh, he was a uh, uh, previous recipient of, of several awards in, in swimming. He started the Ducks program in Aurora. Uh, he's coached at the uh, Paralympic level in, in uh, Brazil and London, and uh, uh, so he's he's been there from grassroots uh, right through to international competition, and uh, he's a fantastic addition. And what I like about Reg is his approach to coaching is not one-size-fits-all. He coaches a certain level this way, and then the athletes who are going to go internationally coaches it a little bit different to their talents. And so I, I know for our daughter, as much as she excelled at swimming and was good at it, she knew she wasn't going to swim internationally. Mm. So she wasn't in that level of programs. And, yeah. I, and I think she liked that, that she wasn't made to do everything that someone was going to compete in Barcelona was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Reg, Reg has a great way of, uh, of, of, of coaching, as you just said, at, uh, at everyone's level. And he can recognize the talent, uh, the skill level, the enthusiasm that, that uh, athletes and swimmers have and, and, and how, how to get the best out of them and, and, and help them. Really, I think what it's all about really is helping them achieve the uh, standard that they want to exactly. get to. You know, where, where they want to get to in the, in the sport of swimming. I'm always amazed by generations in sports, and um, for a lot of people who are Maple Leafs historians, they know the name Cal Gardner and the kind of player he was, and and I've met Dave Gardner a few times, and I remember speaking to a gentleman who played with him in the OHL and the Marlies and talked about what an incredible player he was. He played in the NHL, had a long pro career. His son Ryan had a good career in the OHL and now in Europe. So it's amazing the generations of the Gardner family and its connections to hockey and Aurora. Oh, it's, uh, I've, I've had the honor, the pl privilege, pleasure, I guess, of, of uh, being a friend of the Gardners uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, got to know Cal a little bit, uh, who's now unfortunately uh, passed away uh, a number of years ago. But uh, uh, Cal was a... Uh, 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 a tough, tough hockey player and a talented hockey player as well, and and uh, and then two sons uh, that uh, uh, turn out to be fantastic NHL players. Uh, I think I think with uh, Dave, uh, probably one of the best junior lines ever, uh, ever with with Shut Gardner Harris. It's it, 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 the numbers, <laughs> and people don't believe me. If you look yeah. at Hockey DB. Yeah. And that year, each guy was over 100 points. Yeah, I know. It was a, that doesn't it, ever happen. It was a killer, killer line. It was unbelievable. 
uh, and then uh, drafted by Montreal, uh, uh, had a great pro career, uh, both here in, in uh, North America and then over to Switzerland. And uh, uh, I think he had his last five years in Switzerland and had a great time there. And, and then, yeah, Ryan, uh, uh, what an OHL career he had. Uh, big boy, uh, could play it both ways, tough, skilled, uh, and uh, and then went on to a fantastic career in Switzerland, I think for, I, I believe it's around 20 years. Uh, Incredible career there. Uh, played in the Spengler uh, Cup, which is, if folks at home haven't ever seen the Spangler Cup. It's a big deal there. It is huge. In, in Davos, Switzerland, it is a fantastic uh, holiday uh, uh, tradition. Uh, but at any rate, it, what's exciting about this for us at the Hall of Fame is that this is the first time we've actually inducted a uh, father-son oh. uh, duo or combination. Uh, so we've never done this before. So it's uh, uh, we're kind of excited about that, uh, to have both uh, Dave and Ryan go in together. Uh, uh, we're going to have a, a terrific uh, show uh, of family uh, there on the 7th and uh, uh, to cheer them on and, uh, and welcome them to the Hall of Fame. So we're, we're excited. Speaking with David Tom, the president of Tom Partners Sports Marketing with the Aurora Sports Hall of Fame coming up Thursday, November 7th. You can get your tickets, Aurora, shof.ca. Jim Clark, is, maybe you don't know him, but when the PGA nominates you as a potential volunteer of the year, you were doing something right in the sport. And talk about a man who's given his all over the years to the sport of golf. You can't get much better than Jim Clark. Well, Jim is another just a great guy. Uh, he, he's had over 35 years of volunteering in the golf industry and 11-time uh, uh, chairman of the Canadian Open. Uh, he was the chairman of the CP Open that was just in uh, Aurora at Magna. Um, and what a success that was. About a month ago, yeah, it was fantastic and a uh, great event. And uh, he's so well-respected. Uh, like Reg, he, he, just, he just has a way of, of, of connecting with people and, and, and getting the best out of his volunteer teams and, and groups that, that uh, these events don't happen. I mean, you hear this all the time, but it's true. These events don't happen without volunteers. Oh, and, and we're talking over a thousand volunteers at, at a Canadian Open. Uh, these events need folks like Jim and, and, and the team that he assembles. Uh, and and he, he's, just, he's just had a super career. And the final athlete, well, a sport I know because my youngest daughter competed in it for a while, and it's a physically demanding sport is gymnastics. And Travis uh, Romagnoli, and uh, to compete at the level he did for that long is a testament to his dedication and will because that is tough, tough on the body. Well, yeah, you know, uh, Travis, uh, again, uh, had a fantastic career. He may not be perhaps as, quite as well-known uh, uh, as, as uh, uh, Dave and Reg, uh, who still live in the community. Uh, uh, Travis now lives in the U.S. Uh, he uh, was um, had a great Canadian uh, career in gymnastics, uh, won a national championship, uh, went to a full scholarship to the University of Illinois. That is so uh, difficult uh, to do. <laughs> well, then he went from there to All-American. Uh, so, I mean, he had a... Uh, and was captain of the gymnastics team as well, as well as being All-American. So he's, uh, he uh, settled down there, so he lives in that, that area, but he's, uh, he's got a whole crew coming with him. They're driving up uh, oh, to, fantastic. to Aurora. They're, they're, uh, they're excited to be part of it. We're, he, he's, a, he's a fantastic uh, inductee for us, and we're excited for him. And you've got um, one of the best of the best this country's ever produced, and Rod Black is the MC. It's shaping up to be a fantastic evening, celebrating sport in Aurora with some really amazing individuals individuals being inducted and richly deserved so thursday november the 7th at st andrews college you can still get tickets aurora sports hall of fame 
That's Aurora, S-H-O-F dot C-A. David, a real pleasure. I think it's going to be a great night. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the support of, of, the, of the region. You guys have been terrific, and uh, we hope you're going to be there. Uh, well, I can't <laughs> say no to that. <laughs> This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. We celebrate new music next. Christina Lavecchia is here with Nix and her single, Playing With Fire. So listen, baby, if I let you break down my walls tonight, a shot of the gun that I hold sometimes, are you just gonna burn me and leave me? You're listening to Toronto-based singer-songwriter Nix, and we have her here in studio with us right now. Thank you for being here, Nix. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. So where did your artist name Nix originate from? Well, so my real name is Nicole. <laughs> and um, in university, a good friend of mine would just call me Nix for short. Because um, I hate the name Nikki. I always hated Nikki as a nickname. So she just started calling me Nix. And then obviously doing music, I was like, oh, that's a cute sort of short form version of my name that I could use. Yeah, so, has some edge to it. Yeah. And it's a good stage name. So that's how that came about. Music has been a big part of your life from a young age. You started playing the violin when you were just nine years old and have been in choirs and orchestras growing up. Um, and I also read that you are heavily influenced by 90s pop music. So how would you say your classical background and that genre and era of music has helped shape your sound and the artist you are today? Uh, yeah, so I think it was really helpful to have those two different um, backgrounds, like classical, but then also pop growing up, because it helped me just appreciate all different types of music, um, but also helped me create music that wasn't necessarily, um, I wasn't just one sort of narrow visioned when I was in the studio. Um, it allowed me to pull from my classical background and, you know, say, oh, let's bring in some strings here or um, just not having anything so by the book pop, <laughs> I guess you could say. At what point did you know you wanted to take your musical talents to a professional level? Um, I guess it's always a dream that people have. But I guess really once like university was coming to an end and everyone's like, oh, you have to get a full time job now. <laughs> like, Oh, God. Reality. Um, yeah. And I was like, I mean, I guess, but that's not really what I want to do with my life and really spend all of my days and hours. So um, that's pretty much, yeah, near when I was almost finished university and people were starting to tell me, you have to get a full time job now. And I was like... <laughs> Maybe I'll just focus on music. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you go to school for anything for music or something different? I didn't. I did do something different um, because my parents were always very keen on the fact, like, you have to have a backup in life, you know, um, which I think most parents are like and like I get it. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't do anything music related in university. For anyone listening and looking to get into industry, what are some of the first steps you took to kind of get in the industry and get your feet wet? Just always be, just always perform because you never know who you're going to meet, um, at a show or even if you're like how I met my first producer was 
a friend of a friend. And that's because I performed at charity events or even just at school. Like you never know who the person is that's sitting in your auditorium, like a random school kid that you've never even talked to in the hall. Like their dad could be a music producer or something. Right. And they just hear you perform at the talent show or something. So just always perform. Like, and I say that obviously if you're younger, cause that's how I started doing it. Um, always in school. Um, but yeah, anywhere you can perform, perform for people because you don't know who's out there and who can hear you. Um, yeah, it's all about networking and getting to know as many people as you can. And it's a really small circle. Um, everybody kind of knows everyone. So it's, yeah, if once you put yourself out there, um, good things will happen. <laughs> Just last year, you traveled to Nashville for your music. How was that experience? It was so good. It was great. Nashville was a lot of fun. It was my first, well, it wasn't my, it was my second time. The first time I went was, um, sort of to see if I even wanted to go to Nashville and like do this there. Um, and obviously I said yes. And it's great. And a lot of people think that Nashville is just home to country music, but it's really home to all genres of music and um, especially pop music as well. And it's great because um, it's a little hub that's more central to people who are from like Toronto or New York and um, don't want to take the long plane ride to L.A. Um, but Nashville is awesome. The people are great there. They're so sweet. Um, and it really is like Music City. So everywhere you go, there's music. It's all they talk about. Um, and yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Do you find it's different from, let's say, the Toronto music scene at all? Or It is. It definitely is. Um, Toronto is definitely more alternative in terms of their music. Um, more on the rock side, I guess you could say. Um, and definitely, obviously, hip-hop side and um, R&B side here. Um, definitely in Nashville, it's more... It is predominantly more... Um, country, Christian music, um, and pop music as well. So the music scenes are different, but in terms of the, they are both music cities. Being an independent artist, I'm sure comes with positives as well as challenges. What are some of the biggest obstacles you have had to face or are currently facing as an independent artist? Oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> um, money. <laughs> um, I don't think people realize like how much it costs to create music um, and how little we get back especially now in the day and age of streaming you get like 0.00003 cents per stream and yeah unless you're super super famous like Ariana Grande you're really not going to make a profit so which is unfortunate um, obviously if you sold CD if we still sold CDs and you could mark it up to like 20 bucks like that's a lot better for you, but people don't do that anymore. So a lot of your revenue is mostly coming from merchandising and touring. Um, but of course, if you're just starting out, like you're not really going to have, you know, you can't really start with merch first because you do have to build that fan base. And how you build that fan base is obviously um, going out and performing. Um, but yeah, money like it, like producers are expensive, you know, renting studios are very expensive. Um, so it's hard to sort of get started when you don't, if you don't have a lot to start with. So that's definitely a struggle that I was facing. Um, and I guess still am facing. <laughs> yeah. So how about even um, putting your videos, let's say on YouTube or, um, like, does that help as well? Cause I don't, you kind of started off doing covers yes. on YouTube and, um, I guess putting your name out there and getting followers and yeah. um, views and stuff. Does so that... I think what was really helpful was, um, at the end of the day, like if you want to be an artist, you have to have your own original songs. But people, you know, random strangers around the world 
wouldn't know to put you in. So I guess a good way for me to even um, like get traction to me was to do covers um, because then at least that's what people are typing in, like cover of Little Mix or cover of Taylor Swift, you know, and then that's how they can find you. And then if you also have your originals, then they can sort of, you know, find you that way. Um, so, I mean, and covers are fun, uh, obviously, because it's the music you like and you get to put your own spin on it. You get to do it and hopefully others will like it as well. Um, but definitely putting covers on YouTube is a good way to even at least get your name out there and have others even discover you because it's obviously hard to be discovered with original music. Um, But then at least once you put the covers out there, it can sort of lead them to your original stuff. Playing With Fire is one of your latest singles. Earlier this year, it won a Global Music Award for Pop in Canada. Tell us a bit about the single. Yeah, so Playing With Fire was written in Nashville. And um, I wanted to write something pretty dark, um, not so much bubblegum pop like my other single, Tastes Like Sugar. So um, I was also three months into a relationship when I wrote the song. And I thought, ooh, let's just write something that, you know, if a relationship went really bad, what could happen? So you're already forecasting I know. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was like, should I do this? I don't know. But um, I thought, why not? Let's just do it. So... That's how Playing With Fire came about, and it's had really positive, um, I guess, reviews from people. Um, and yeah, so it won a Global Music Award for Best Pop Song Canada, bronze. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, it's great to be recognized anywhere and for whatever you put out. So that was really exciting um, to be able to, to receive that and um, to get that recognition. Songwriting is very personal and sometimes, I would think, therapeutic. After writing a song, have you ever debated releasing it because it was just too personal? Uh, that's a really good question. And no. No, because actually what's really hard is maybe singing the song live. Mm-hmm. That's hard. But actually just releasing it and putting it out there, no. I think it's kind of cool because um, it is like a relief to get that out there and have others know, A, this is what I'm going through, um, B, hope you can relate, hope it can help. Um, but I guess the hard part would be, oh, crap, do I have to sing the song live now? Because that's when it's like you kind of have to like relive it again. And you don't know what emotions are going to Exactly, exactly. But just releasing it, no. Yeah. It's out there, it's out It's the out world. there, it's whatever. <laughs> yeah, like I don't have to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, singing it would be hard. Playing With Fire is out. What are you most looking forward to? What's next for Nyx? Um, I have a whole, like, you have a couple other songs that I wrote in Nashville. So I'm hoping to release them as an EP, um, which will include Playing With Fire. Um, and I guess just doing a, more touring and hopefully being able to get interviewed by <laughs> other amazing stations and just get my, my name and my voice out there. And if anyone wants to connect with you online, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram and Twitter at It's Nick's Y'all. And they can find me on Facebook at It's Nick's Music. And they can also find me on YouTube as It's Nick's Music. And my website, of course, <laughs> nicksmusic.ca. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, you're the best. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or a community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.